Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. Every American should have high-quality, affordable health coverage and care. That is a core principle of the Federation, and it is the main reason we were a leader in the hospital industry for the passage of the Affordable Care Act and have remained staunch supporters of the ACA since its enactment. The ACA framework is well-suited as a pluralistic pathway to universal coverage in this country. Despite the continuous assault from its political opponents from the moment ACA became law, its framework has prevailed, and this year its programs covered a record 31 million Americans. Recent congressional action to increase subsidies and investments in better enrollment processes are helping at least temporarily. But enrollment could be even higher if the new levels of ACA subsidies were made permanent. And effective action is needed to get the ACA Medicaid eligible but uncovered in the non-expansion states covered either by Medicaid or through the exchange health insurance. We who support the ACA framework hope the most recent Supreme Court decision in favor of the act will be its final challenge. The debate needs to stop and all of us need to focus on improving the ACA so the aspiration of universal coverage becomes an inspirational reality. We need to build on the ACA framework so that all coverage gaps are closed in this country. Here to discuss how we achieve this end is someone whose life's work has been to stretch the possible to make life better for all Americans. Ron Pollack, Chair Emeritus of Families USA. Thanks so much for being with us today, Ron. I'm delighted to be with you once again, Chip, and thank you so much for inviting me. To get started, Ron, would you tell us a bit about your career and accomplishments? Well, I'm not sure any of my accomplishments compete with being a friend of yours. That's something uh, that's very dear to me. In terms of my background, briefly, in the 1960s, I worked in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, particularly in 1966 and 1967. I'm a lawyer, background, don't hold it against me. But I started a group in 1970 called FRAC, Food Research and Action Center, which was an anti-hunger, anti-advocacy organization. It still is in existence. I still serve on the board of the organization. And as part of FRAC, what we did, there were a thousand plus counties in the country that had no food assistance program at all. One of the first things we did was we brought two dozen lawsuits on the same day in the states that had one or more counties that didn't have a food stamp program or a commodity distribution program. And as a result of that, after we won the first two of those lawsuits, President Nixon decided that he was going to expand the food stamp program because he was advised that the administration might probably lose the other pending lawsuits. We also brought the litigation that started the so-called WIC program for pregnant and nursing mothers and infants. So we did some rather significant things in terms of helping to reduce poverty and hunger in America. I worked at FRAC for 10 years, and then for three years, I was dean of the Antioch University School of Law, which was a law school that trained aspiring public interest lawyers. And after that, I was the founding executive director of Families USA, which worked on health care. We pushed for expanded coverage. We helped to push for the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, push for expansion of Medicaid, 
And we played, I would like to think, a significant role in helping to get the Affordable Care Act enacted. And in the process, Chip, you and I became what some people nicely called strange bedfellows. And we worked to get consumer groups and industry groups to work together so that we could actually pass meaningful health care reform. So that's my background. Ron, I fondly remember our working together on the Strange Bedfellows movement and like to think that it contributed directly to the action 10 years ago that led to ACA. And I don't know about you, but I have never thought, though, that we'd still be discussing the basic tenets of ACA this many years later. I thought we'd just see it working, much as Medicare and Medicaid for seniors and low-income Americans. The Supreme Court recently upheld the ACA for the third time with an even larger margin than before. I know you were at the first hearing. What was that like when ACA was up before the court? Well, I'm happy to respond to your question, Chip. Let me just say, with respect to your prefatory comment, I thought the work that you did and I collaborated with, and we had significant cooperation from the insurance industry, from physicians, from nurses, And I think that made a huge difference because, as you know as well as anybody, the failed history of health reform was that each and every time there was a meaningful opportunity to pass significant health reform, there was at least one industry group that strongly opposed it, spent a lot of money in opposition, and played a significant role in defeating this. And because of the strange bedfellows effort that involved the hospitals and the insurers and the physicians and the pharmaceutical companies, we did not have that kind of opposition. And that made a real difference. And I know Barack Obama remarked about that as well. So I think that was very important. Now, with respect to your question, I actually sat in the Supreme Court all three days of the oral argument in the first case that challenged the Affordable Care Act, NFIB versus Sebelius. I actually sat in on the second case, King v. Burwell, which was a very different challenge. You know, what was very interesting, I I have argued cases in the Supreme Court. Actually, I've argued two cases literally on the same day, both constitutional law cases. In any case that is brought, there's usually each side gets half an hour. So that oral argument usually takes one hour and that's it. With respect to NFIB versus Sebelius, there were three days of oral argument, and altogether there were six hours of argument. One of the stories I like to tell is I was there when the chief justice announced the decision. I I was sitting next to a person you know well, Liz Fowler, who played a significant role on the Senate Finance Committee in drafting the legislation. She was seated on my left. And seated on my immediate right in his wheelchair was Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And when the Chief Justice started to read the summary of his opinion, he first talked about how the Commerce Clause, which all of us thought was the key constitutional authority for passing the Affordable Care Act, he said it did not provide constitutional authority for the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And I remember slouching further and further and further in my seat, feeling that the case was going to be lost. And so was Liz Fowler seated on my left. Then the chief justice started talking about the taxing provision and how the taxing clause provided a constitutional basis for the Affordable Care Act. 
And I popped up in my seat because even though I didn't expect that to be the basis of the decision, it was actually going to be sufficient to make sure that the Affordable Care Act would not be declared unconstitutional. And then finally, the Chief Justice spoke about the Medicaid mandate that was in the Affordable Care Act, which required states to expand Medicaid. And he said that it was unconstitutional because it was too coercive of the states and the way it was set up. And I started slouching again. So it was, it was literally an up and down experience. Now, we had a lot of people outside the Supreme Court on that day, and I was supposed to lead a rally right afterwards. And I came out of the court. The last thing in my mind was what the Chief Justice had said about Medicaid, and I was very unhappy about it. And the Deputy Director of Families USA, who was helping to orchestrate the rally we were going to have, saw me. And, and literally, she punched me in the chest and she said, would you please put a smile on your face? We live for another day. The Affordable Care Act is constitutional. And indeed, I tried to keep a, a warm smile on. So, yes, that was a very important day. And thankfully, uh, the 5-4 decision upheld the core of the Affordable Care Act. You know, as I pointed out in my introduction Ron, the ACA has proven to be a remarkably resilient, surviving the hostile environment that led to those court cases, the ones you describe, uh, and sort of years from the last administration of trying to find all the ways they could to slow it down, to neutralize it, and with Republicans even trying to pass repeal and replace legislation, which failed. They were unable to do it. It seems that ACA was meant to survive. What do you think over the last four years, enabled it to be so resilient, despite the fact that those implementing it from at least the federal level really wanted to see it repealed? Well, of course, you're speaking about uh, the previous administration, which had pledged to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. The Obama administration clearly had great pride in the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I think the key thing that has kept the program that was developed through the Affordable Care Act viable is that a lot of people are getting help. You know, there are now over 20 million people who are getting help from the Affordable Care Act. Some are getting it through the expansion of Medicaid with the states that have decided that they were going to expand the program. And there were very significant subsidies provided for people who were perhaps ineligible for Medicaid but still could not afford premiums. And by the way, that was the key issue in the second Supreme Court case, King v. Burwell, where there was a challenge as to whether the subsidies, the premium subsidies provided actually were permitted under the statute. And thankfully, the court agreed six to three that the statute did authorize those uh, subsidies because that's made a big difference. But I think the key answer to your question, Chip, is that the reason I think the program has survived is it really serves a real need for real people. And it is not easy to withdraw something that is so important to millions of people whose lives really depend on it. 
Ron, along those lines, fortunately, the Biden administration is 100 percent behind the ACA, so the tables have turned. Uh, How do you see the administration strengthening ACA, and what were the incentives and opportunities placed in the American Rescue Plan to expand exchange coverage and encourage states to expand Medicaid, those states that haven't expanded Medicaid yet for the ACA eligibles? Let's divide that into two parts. The first part really is the legis- the new legislation provides improved subsidies for people, and it's especially important for low-income people. Let me give you an example. For those between 138 and 150% of the federal poverty level, under the Affordable Care Act, as previously implemented, people would have to pay over 3% and some even over 4% of their income in premiums. Under the revised Affordable Care Act that the Biden administration helped to push, those families now do not have to pay a premium at all. And that makes a huge difference. And so I think perhaps the most significant improvement that's been made in the Biden administration, but it's only temporary, is that people are not having to pay such a large portion of their income for premiums. And especially for people at the lower end of the income scale, that makes quite a difference. That provision is only applicable through 2022. And so one of the remaining issues is, will that improvement be continued beyond 2022? It's a very important improvement. And my hope is that Congress, as part of one of the pieces of legislation that are pending, whether it's infrastructure or the legislation that uh, the Biden administration has been proposing as a uh, to go uh, along with infrastructure, hopefully that uh, this improvement in subsidies will be extended. So that's one key change. And I think it has made a huge difference. The second change was very well intended, and that was to provide fiscal incentives to the states that had not yet expanded the Medicaid program. There are a dozen states that have not yet expanded Medicaid. They're predominantly in the Southeast. And the Biden administration provided opportunities for states to get significant increases in federal matching dollars if they chose to expand the program. Now, unfortunately, none of the states uh, have so far opted into taking this generous offer uh, from the Biden administration. And so we still have a dozen states that haven't expanded Medicaid. The states that have expanded Medicaid in the last four or five years have done so largely as a result of state-based referenda that were passed in states like Idaho and Utah and Nebraska and Oklahoma. Missouri also approved it, but the governor has held up funding for it. So uh, it's not clear yet what's going to happen in Missouri. So we still have a problem with respect to a dozen states that have millions of people who are very low income 
who don't have health care coverage, who need it. And despite what the Biden administration has done with its generosity, it doesn't look like it's moved the needle. It's really important to get these lower income Americans who through ACA are eligible for Medicaid, but frankly, just don't live in the right state to get the coverage. And the referendum seemed to have gone as far as they can go with states pushing back. Uh, Mississippi, probably they'd be pushed back in Florida and clearly in Missouri, they literally passed it. And then, and the state legislature and the governor are pushing back. So assuming that the incentives in the recent bill that you described are not going to be taken up. Uh, What are other avenues do you think that could be considered in federal legislation in the reconciliation or uh, some upcoming legislation where we could, I don't want to say circumvent the state, but find a way to get coverage for these uninsured that are eligible, but just in the wrong geographic location? How can we get them coverage most effectively, you think, if the state is just not going to go ahead with the Medicaid expansion? Well, first, I don't want to give up on every one of the states. There are three states that are part of the 12 that have an expanded coverage, that have referenda. The other nine do not. Those states are South Dakota, uh, Mississippi, and Florida. And Florida, obviously, is a huge state. So there still are some possibilities. The Mississippi legislature is trying to make it more difficult to pass a referendum. I don't know what will happen ultimately in that state. So there might be some opportunities. In Florida, it's a big hurdle that needs to be overcome because in order to actually win the referendum, you don't need 51%, you need over 60%. So that takes us back to your question. And it seems to me there are two possible alternatives to think about. Hopefully there'll be others. I worry about each of these. So one of them is that, as you know, Chip, people who are below the poverty level, if the Medicaid program has not been expanded in their state, they're not eligible for getting subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. And so one of the things that could be done is that we could change that whole with respect to subsidies. And we could say that people or who fall below poverty can get uh, coverage through the Affordable Care Act, through the marketplace, and they would get subsidies. And those subsidies would result in people literally paying zero uh, in premiums because of their low income. Now, let me express an issue that, I, that I'm concerned about with respect to that suggestion as an alternative. My concern is that If we solve this problem uh, in the 12 states by enabling people who are low income in those states to get coverage through the marketplace via the Affordable Care Act, the subsidies are such that people pay zero. I think that could be very helpful to those folks. My concern is think about the other 38 states and the District of Columbia. What will they say when we've done some kind of a detour to get coverage for those low-income people, whereas in those 38 states in the District of Columbia, the states are contributing a portion of the Medicaid program, even though it's a relatively low percentage, 10% at this juncture. Will some of the states feel that they should drop out of the expansion of Medicaid? I don't know. 
but there's a, there is a question of fiscal equity that needs to be concerned. There's another idea that is being floated around. I don't know how well it would work, but uh, some on the House Ways and Means Committee are talking about in the states that have not expanded Medicaid, allow the cities to expand Medicaid, and they would do so under the same conditions that the states in the other 38 states in the District of Columbia have done. So they would get a substantial federal subsidy. The cities would have to pay some portion after the first three years of implementation. Now, how well would that work? What would happen if you were in Texas and Houston and San Antonio and Dallas decided they wanted to implement the program because those parts of the state are more progressive? Will the state try and prevent that from happening? And what happens under those circumstances? So it's not clear how well that would work. Boy, it's a complicated problem, but we really need to get those people coverage. I sort of wonder whether you could combine the two options you presented and make the first one time limited and then second, provide maybe some other incentives or something so that there could be a cure after three years when you've got people covered. And the question is, are the state then going to let those people just hang? And so I don't know. It's a difficult problem. But I think we need to take it on because we're at a point at which I think we're at 2.1 or 2.5 million people that don't have the wherewithal to purchase coverage but are left bare. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, Chip, it is clear that the early, if you don't mind my using the term, recalcitrance on the part of the states that refused to implement the Medicaid expansion, I think part of it was they were so strongly convinced that the Affordable Care Act should go away. They thought it was unconstitutional. These were states that actually played a significant role in challenging the constitutionality of the ACA. So I think a number of them felt that there's no reason to expand Medicaid when the Affordable Care Act may ultimately be declared unconstitutional. Well, now that that fear or aspiration on the part of some of these conservative states no longer seems to be realistic. It may be more possible that some of these states will give this more serious consideration. Remember, in the first three years of expansion, the states received 100% funding from the federal government for the expansion. That's a pretty good deal. So maybe there'll be some slippage on the part of the opposition that has existed to the Medicaid expansion. Well, I guess to conclude, many years ago, when Medicare and Medicaid passed, Arizona, I think, on the Medicaid side, held out for many, many years before they got in. So maybe we're at about that same point since the tables have turned and the opposition to ACA will will never see it repealed. I think the law is here to stay. Well, I agree with that. And now that this third Supreme Court decision has been rendered, and it's clear the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. Hopefully you're right, and hopefully what we experienced after 1964, after Medicaid and Medicare were enacted, and it took Arizona a while to come into the program, maybe we will experience that with the 12 states that haven't expanded the coverage. I certainly hope so. It really is critically important. 
Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. And I just deeply appreciate our, our friendship and more important, what you and I in our small ways have helped accomplish in terms of more Americans being covered and hopefully one day all Americans being covered. Well, thank you, Chip. I, I not only cherish our friendship, but you and I, as some of our friends called us strange bedfellows, we work closely together and I think we help make a difference. And I really appreciated how hard you work to get the Affordable Care Act adopted. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at CHIP Con. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.